welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. In this mini-series of podcasts, we're looking at what life is like for families stuck in problem debt, why they fall into debt and why it's hard to escape. In the series, we're telling just some of the stories from Life in the Debt Trap by Saul Shimani and Larissa Popel, who both work as researchers for the Children's Society, the books published by Policy Press. In these podcasts, we'll be telling the stories and looking at how they present ideas for ways towards more compassionate policy making. The first story is Stella's, around debt and isolation and the impact that debt has across families. It's read by Larissa. Sitting on a cream sofa, chatting to Stella in her sun-dappled lounge, with oak beams and low ceilings adding to the charm of the room, it's hard not to feel that this is a pretty idyllic setting. Stella and her three children, 14-year-old George, 6-year-old Maisie and 3-year-old Callum, live in a picture-postcard village in an affluent part of the north of England, where expensive detached houses are interspersed with rows of terrace cottages along winding country lanes. Stella owns the diminutive-looking but spacious cottage that they live in with the help of a mortgage, and it feels like the kind of place to put down roots. Certainly, this is their hope. But Stella tells me about a different reality, a story of financial problems and family breakup, which means that the longevity of their current living situation is far from assured. Exactly a year before our interview, Stella's husband, William, upped and left with no warning. Although their relationship had been under strain, she thought that things were back on track, so his departure knocked her for six. In the run-up to him leaving, Stella found that she was using up what was left of her meagre savings to pay for food and essentials for the family. She assumed that her marriage was still intact and that one of them would be working again in the not-too-distant future. Her husband had lost his job and she'd stopped working to raise Maisie and Callum. With the benefit of hindsight, she realises that this was the wrong assumption to make. Until a few years earlier, the family were, on the face of it, pretty similar to many other middle-income families living in the UK, with one earner, in this case William, bringing in a decent wage of about £40,000 a year, and Stella's subsidiary income, generated through her online upcycling business, adding a little extra to the pot. Resourcefulness, combined with a little handiness with a sewing machine led Stella to work out that second-hand clothes picked up from charity shops could be jazzed up with beading, piping and sequins and sold on eBay for a reasonable profit margin. Thanks to careful juggling of childcare and income generation activities, Stella and William were able to cover the everyday costs of family life with a bit left over for unforeseen expenses, such as when the roof sprung a leak. They had fairly sizeable debts in addition to the mortgage, but these felt affordable and not out of proportion with the amount of money coming in. Not long after they moved into the cottage, Stella had taken out two bank loans, the first to buy furniture for their new home and the second to pay for them to get married. The loans were unsecured, but given their situation of relative financial stability, they felt manageable. In fact, even when Stella stopped working when Maisie and Callum were born, they were still able to manage with only William's income. Their fortunes started to change when William lost his job. At first, the job loss did not feel like the end of the world. It was a major income shock, yes, but the redundancy payout was helpful in clearing some of the debts. However, with neither of them working and no regular income, the cost of everyday living came sharply into focus. 
Their mortgage lender agreed to a period of interest-only payments, but even these lower payments were not really affordable. The prospect of losing their home felt very real. Within the space of a few months, they'd racked up four overdrafts, two credit cards and a bank loan. The monthly interest on these was substantial. They pinned their hopes on William getting another job. However, after several months of scouring the job advertisements every day and scraping together the petrol money needed to get to the occasional interview, but still coming home empty-handed, William's hopes of finding a well-paid job faded. The interim solution was to take on shift work, stacking shelves at a supermarket while working a few hours a week for a local courier business. This earned him the equivalent of what he used to pay in tax. Meanwhile, Stella considered looking for a full-time job, but her pre-children wage was a fraction of what William had been earning, and someone needed to look after the children. So she started the ad hoc work that she could do from home again and fit around looking after the children, her online upcycling business and a bit of childminding here and there. Then misfortune struck again. William exacerbated an old injury in his shoulder due undoubtedly to the heavy lifting and repetitive nature of the supermarket job and so followed a period of several months of unemployment without any sick pay. It's not clear why William did not receive sick pay. Stella believes he must have been entitled to something, but he preferred to cut his losses and sever ties with the supermarket. The family found themselves drifting apart, each disappearing into their own world. People deal with financial stress in different ways. Not being able to provide for the family hit William hard and he became depressed. In stark contrast to William's depressed inertia, however, Stella threw herself into meticulous organisation of the household finances, trying to retain some control of the increasingly bleak financial situation in a hive of nervous activity. She dutifully logged all of their debts, income and outgoings in her trusty spreadsheet. But as the interest on their debts snowballed, they reached a point where servicing them became increasingly untenable. Their financial difficulties and the differences in their coping strategies were too great. After a year of trying to keep their heads above water, William walked out and Stella was left alone to deal with the debts that had built up, the mortgage and three children with no regular income. Not that William saw the debts as her sole responsibility, but without any material or psychological resources to help, in practice it fell to Stella to organise them on behalf of them both. It was only at her lowest ebb that Stella was finally put in touch with an organisation that could set her up with a debt management plan. With the repayment plan in place, Stella felt in great, greater control of her debts. But even though her outgoings became more manageable, there was still a sense that she was just treading water and that surviving on the money generated through her online business, which used to be a bonus to, to spend on treats for the children, was not realistic in the long term. There is now big, a big question mark hanging over the future of their living situation and Stella fears that the patients of the mortgage company, to whom only interest payments have been paid for two years, will soon run thin. The stark contrast between their financial circumstances and those apparently of their neighbours is striking. For Stella, the daily upheaval of counting the pennies to pay for the essentials is compounded by, by the feeling that they need to hide their financial struggles from all around them. While she frets about whether she has enough petrol to get the children to school and whether the car will pass its MOT, they are surrounded by tarmac driveways and families with three cars to choose between. There used to be family meetings 
to decide what the next family trip would entail, but these have fallen by the wayside. Stella has had to impose an amnesty on all non-essential car journeys, which means that George is no longer taken on cinema trips with his friends every fortnight, and Maisie and Callum have had to give up their after-school karate and trampolining clubs. We don't do anything. We literally have no money to go to the cinema. We can't go swimming. We can't get the petrol to go anywhere. All three children know not to ask for the treats and activities that they used to, but it's 14-year-old George who seems to have struggled the most. When Stella signed the children up for free school meals because she could no longer keep up the pretense that the family finances could cope without them, an awkwardness was introduced into George's relationships with his peers at school. Many of his classmates considered private tuition, expensive holidays and handouts of £50 to be the norm. In contrast, George uses his birthday money to splurge on a pizza when a friend comes round after school. The social stigma associated with poverty can bring with it a thousand indignities. Pulling out his free school meal card at the school canteen checkout always makes George squirm because so few of his peers have one. The school provides financial support for school trips and grants for a uniform, but when his tutor bellows, oh yeah, you're on pupil premium, aren't you, in front of the whole class, he wishes he could disappear into thin air. George spends a lot of time in his bedroom playing games on the internet. He talks at length about the crew battles that he plays online with friends, some of whom he knows and others who he has met online, against other cruiser players from across the globe. Violent video games may feature in the lives of many teenage boys, but in George's case, the line between fact and fiction is blurred because violence is increasingly a part of his real life as well. Head in hand, Stella tells me about the phone calls she's been getting from school. George has been fighting. George has punched one of the other kids in the face. George has sworn at a dinner lady. It's every other day. Yeah, I've got anger issues. These words seem easy for George to say, but he cannot easily articulate what brings on the anger. Some of the incidents are clearly money-related, including a couple of times when his friends have taken the piss out of him because he could not afford the £1 it cost to buy chips on the way home from school. There was also an, in- an incident with a dinner lady who would not let him off the 5p for a sandwich when he was short on cash one lunchtime. George admits that these incidents made him see red and that he gets in trouble at school as a result. Neither George nor Stella attributes his behaviour problems directly to the family's financial difficulties, but there's no doubt that increasing isolation from each other is a painful feature of their story. The constant backdrop to family life is mum working, always working, with the younger ones getting shouted at for being too noisy and George being left to his own devices. My interview with George also makes me think about the different dynamics that I've encountered during this research project. So many of the research participants I've talked with are female, mothers mainly, and a number of teenage girls. The conversations tend to flow easily. For the most part, we meander around the topic effortlessly, and I hardly need to consult the list of questions that I've prepared. I feel tuned into their body language, and I know when to hold back, when to let an off-topic discussion run its course, and when to gently bring things back. In interviews such as these, words are in abundance. With George, however, it's a different story. I find myself relying heavily on my list of prompt questions, grateful for all the pre-fieldwork preparation that I've done. Monosyllabic answers are his norm, and I struggle to draw out more in-depth reflections. I worry that he would rather not talk about this, or to me, and that the consent he's given to take part is not fully informed. 
Yet every time I gently remind him that participation is voluntary and that consent is revocable, in other words, that he does not have to do this and can stop at any time, he is adamant that he wants to continue. Then at the end, he tells me that he liked talking about it all, and I wonder how many times he's been asked what he thinks and feels before. I resolve to be more comfortable with fewer words and with silence. To discuss Stella's story, we're joined by Saoirse Larissa, Nicole Fasihi, the National Campaigns Manager at the Children's Society, and Sam Royston, who is the Director of Policy and Research at the Children's Society and author of Broken Benefits, also published by Policy Press. So thinking about the story, um, what's the impact of unemployment on mental health and how does this contribute to problems with debt? So I think William and Stella's story is um, actually quite representative of a situation that a lot of people will be experiencing. Um, so in William's case, a period, you know, a redundancy followed by a period of looking for well-paid work, in fact, looking for any work, um, directly contributed to him experiencing mental health problems. Um, But then it also contributed to him sort of withdrawing from family life um, and becoming much less involved in family affairs and being involved in the management of, of the family's financial affairs and also in addressing the debt problems. Um, And basically, everything fell to Stella. And I think that that obviously didn't help the debt problems, but also I think it sort of made um, William's mental health problems more entrenched because he clearly felt like he was failing his family. And I think what we see there is something that um, is quite evident in lots of research that's been carried on about the effects of unemployment. Um, I mean, we know that um, unemployment is one of the most important factors for a person's well-being, and the longer the spell of unemployment, the the stronger the effects. Um, We also know that um, that there can be a scarring effect. So even if you do find a well-paid job, um, even if you do find new employment, your well-being doesn't necessarily recover. And I think in William's case, you see that if the new job that is found doesn't have the sort of social prestige or um, doesn't have the, the income of, of a previous one, then it's then those effects uh, are more likely to sort of be apparent. And I think that was really the case with him. And finally, I think that they... Um, Lots of other research that's been done on on this topic has found that men do tend to cope less well with unemployment than women. Um, So what we were seeing with um, in the ways that they were, Stella and William were were coping with it, are really quite reflective of, you know, of what is known more generally about the issue. So it seems there's an obvious connection between unmanageable debt and relationship breakdown. Did you want to say a bit more about the statistics that might back that up? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, um, I mean, actually, firstly, um, I think it's something that we saw several times throughout the different um, stories that, you know, we were um, we were listening to um, across lots of different research participants. There was definitely a link between problems in relationships and the experience of, of problem debt. Um, but I think also there are different ways of, of, of look, you know, different perspectives on this on this problem. Um, at the Children's Society, we've done work sort of looking at from the perspective of households with problem debt, 
Um, so we've done a survey with parents and children, um, and that shows um, you know, quite a clear link between strain in relationship um, and debt. So I think it was, um, it was almost 60% of parents um, who, were, who had problem debt um, said that their relationships were under strain. Um, and almost half of, of the children in those households, so it was 47% or something like that, um, said that a lack of money contributed to problems within the household. But you can also look at it from the perspective of, of, um, of relationship breakdown. And there's um, the relationship support organisation Relate have done some similar research where they've looked at those people whose relationship problems are obviously bad enough for them to be um, seeking support from Relate. And I think um, in their research, almost a third of those of their service users um, said that pro- um, problem debt had directly contributed to the to relationship breakdown. So there's That's that as well. That's a big percentage. It is, yeah. 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 Well, I think, that, um, I think that what's striking about the relationship between kind of unemployment and... Um, and kind of uh, mental health challenges is that it can it can work both ways. That um, when people face problems of ill kind of ill health, um, it can clearly lead to uh, the result of that can be that they need to move out of work. They're no longer able to work. But similarly, that period of being out of work can itself have a uh, can further impact on their uh, on their mental health, um, and th- th- that makes it a much more kind of challenging makes it a much more challenging problem to deal with because the 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 response to people who are not working as a result of uh, mental ill health can't simply be just get back into work yeah. because in some cases they can't um, and I think that there needs to be much more to both provide them people with the support whilst out of work which could help to get them back into a position where they can consider a return to work and also support once people do return to work mm-hmm. to make sure that that uh, return is kind of uh, can be sustained because quite often what you see is people who have had a period out of work as a result of ill health trying work again but then struggling to retain it and problems because of the new pressures that it adds into an already kind of difficult set of circumstances so there's something both about kind of you know preventing that cycle starting of that kind of relationship between uh, kind of unemployment or people being out of work and and people facing ill health but also about supporting a kind of a, a, the recovery from that position i think and what um what form do you think that support should take what would be particularly useful for people well, there's, I think there's a combination of practical support, so uh, kind of supportive uh, employment support to kind of consider um, what people may feel less and more comfortable with doing, which could make a return to employment more sustainable, mm-hmm. um, and ensuring that where people are taking on work, it's the kind of work that they do feel capable of doing. But there's also, there's also a question of financial support um, and making sure that when people do make that return to work, um, they have... Um, in some Where they need it, the additional support that working with... 
uh, ill health or a disability have the financial support needed to help to cover some of the additional costs that that might incur. So, for example, if somebody has a very severe uh, mental health problem, they may struggle with using public transport to get to work and may need to use a taxi. Actually, having the money to be able to cover those additional costs could be really important as a way of um, as a way of making work more sustainable. Actually, there's a problem with universal credit, the new benefit system that actually reduces the amount of in-work support which is provided to people with disabilities in a lot of circumstances, actually in particular parents with disabilities uh, by quite a lot of money. So there are some some clear immediate policy challenges in that space as well. Which is about getting people back to work and keeping, helping them to stay and work. It's very much not just about getting back to work, it's very much about making sure that that's sustainable as well. Mm. But there's even something about just getting them back into work and some of the things you're talking about, Sam, in terms of the the financial and emotional costs of that. Um, And in William and um, Stella's story, um, you know, William was clearly, it was being able to get the resources together to actually make it to an interview were Mm. quite considerable. So, you know, the, the family would sort of have to account for a certain amount of their budget to get him the petrol, to get to an interview... Um, and and then obviously you know when that wasn't successful mm. that was just an, a, another sort of added cost for them to, to work into the budget and I also think there's um, there, there's something around the sort of that that the cumulative impact of 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 not being successful with these you mm. know with, the, with these various interviews that um, William went through um, and I think there's quite strong evidence to to, to show that actually there is this vicious cycle of of sort of unemployment contributing to um, mental health problems but then mental health problems sort of aggravating um you know the ability to 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 find making more difficult mm. to um, to find new work it's a um, cycle. Yeah, yeah and and then that you know in turn sort of aggravating the financial problems and debt problems that you know in this case the family experienced mm. And all the while, Stella and William are there in their nice house, looking out of their windows at their neighbours, seeing that they all the nice cars and feeling not part of it. So I also wondered if you wanted to speak about what the impact of social norms and how that plays into their story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was quite surprised when I was doing a bit of um, sort of you know additional research for, for for this book and for this story in particular. And this was something that I didn't really realise, but there. Um, but there is evidence that um, Stella and William's situation um, in some ways um, is sort of an additional burden. So in, in terms of, you know, they, as you say, they were looking out, they were seeing that um, their own experience was really not reflected in the experiences of their neighbours. Mm. Um, and there is research to show that, you know, if, if you're this type of situation where... Um, you know repossessions or bankruptcies these types of problems are not affecting people um, in general then actually it's psychologically more difficult to cope with that situation there's there's a sense of 
if we're all in it together then I you know I can maybe cope with this if I'm the only one and I'm struggling on my own Mm -hmm. then it's it's harder to do so um so I think that that was that was definitely something that was sort of coming through quite strongly through their experience also not just for the adults but also for the children um you know there's there's definitely a sense of if you face the sort of the double whammy of of poverty and inequality yeah. if you've got poverty on top of um you know being visibly different um to 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 your peers and and not being able to enjoy the same activities experiences things that they enjoy and then then that really is a sort of you know an added bind for them so i think we saw that as well in 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 their story i mean that kind of that kind of financial uh, kind of challenges uh, situation of financial challenge can be incredibly stigmatizing mm. for children mm. can't it i mean if they don't have the same kind of the, the ability to do the same things as their peers to go to i mean it talks in the the story about kind of cinema trips with friends and after school clubs and things like mm-hmm. that if they're not mm-hmm. a, if young people aren't able to participate in mm-hmm. the same things that their friends are doing it makes it much harder to build and maintain those kind of those crucial relationships mm-hmm. uh, in their lives as well and it can be that you know um policy particularly through schools uh, and the school environment can actively kind of contribute Mm -hmm. to that sense of stigma which I find kind of particularly worrying so for example when children in receipt of free school meals can be kind of identified as such they can often they can often face a lot of stigma as a result of that and a lot of schools kind of engage with some of these issues they look at things like poverty proofing school day to kind of address to recognize the challenges that poverty creates for um children kind of facing some of those challenges um in different in different parts of the the the, the school day um but it's that's not always the case so you've got for example a lot of schools now have cashless um school meal systems so that children receiving free school meals can't be identified from children not receiving free school meals but that's not universally the case there are still a lot of schools where if you're a child if you're a child receiving free school meals it might even be that you get like a ticket or a token i used to have that at school and and you still get that in some cases i mean it's an you know an astonishing situation that schools Mm. can be so can so fail to kind of recognize the the problems that that might cause to a child that they they're continuing with that kind of system and actually we saw in you know we saw in in this story the challenges that 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 that, that created for for for, for george in this case yeah. um so yeah i i think that there is something obviously about the parents and the kind of the feelings that somebody like uh in in william's situation may have of kind of feeling like they're meant to be the kind of provider as it were for the family that they're me- meant to be able able to support them in a way which addresses some of this kind of stigma and enables them to keep up with what the what what other people on their street have but it's also very much about the experiences of the children in that family as well Hmm. and i i think that um it's also really important to recognize with this with this family 
um, that even though they were surrounded by families who were having expensive skiing holidays and private tuition or have several cars or whatever, that this was not an aspiration for this family. None of them. Right. Definitely not the children. And from what I could see, not the adults either. Um, so I don't think they ever have these kinds of experiences. Um, and so when, when George was talking about the kinds of things he wanted... He wasn't talking about material possessions. He was talking about relationships, essentially. Fitting in. It was about being able to do things. And what was most painful for him was when it was really obvious to everybody that he wasn't able to, you know, afford the, the types of, you know, ordinary activities that, that others could do. And uh, as you mentioned, Sam, when he was sort of publicly humiliated um, in class by a teacher sort of calling out his name saying oh yeah you're you're the one on pupil premium aren't you so it it's less about a sort of an aspiration to wealth and more about um, wanting to be you know similar um, and I think this is a really important point um, because we've done a lot of research um, into children's well-being and that has shown us that this is a sort of a, a more general experience for children there there's a really interesting question that we've asked about you know how much spending money you have compared to your friends and um unsurprisingly those children that have a lot less than their friends have lower well-being i think we might all expect that but rather less um, um rather less obviously we've also found that those children that have more than their friends have slightly lower well-being than those that have the same there's there's something that um about equality for children which is really really striking and by the way doesn't necessarily tally with what we know about adults for for adults and well-being um actually the comparisons may adults want to be doing a bit better off than those around them there is a certain amount of keeping up with the joneses but also with maybe doing slightly better than the joneses but it's not the case for children and i think that's quite important because young people are often sort of criticized for being overly material Realistic, um, and of course they aspire to have the things that those around them have. But actually, there isn't an aspiration to be doing better. It's only an aspiration to be able to join in. I thought this story was really revealing about the differences in priorities of the adults and the children. And so I suppose it's about being aware of them and the people around them being aware of that as well. And um, just putting that support in across the whole family so they can be a bit more resilient and stick together a bit more maybe Mm. there's a lot more I mean there's clearly a lot more that 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 needs to be done in this space I think I think really obvious one is we do need kind of more schools to take um, some of the issues of children feeling stigmatized during the school day more seriously it not only clearly has an impact on children's relationships in school but will undoubtedly have an impact on their kind of their whole educational experience and their outcomes as well mm-hmm. I mean in this case we saw in George's case there being potentially behavioral issues mm-hmm. linked to the financial problems that their family was experiencing and the stigma and some of the experience Experiences that George was faced with, with as a result of that. And if you've got starting to see kind of 
practical outcomes, as it were, and negative outcomes in children's school lives, where you've got a kind of child potentially having kind of anger issues mm. as a result of feeling stigmatised because they don't have the same money as their friends, then that's going to have an impact on, on their whole life and certainly will have an impact on their school results. That That's come through really strongly in another research project that we've been working on for quite a few years now with children in, in low-income families where they that there was just this really noticeable level of anger and behavioural issues and children being funnelled into um, kind of therapeutic or counselling support services. And it's something that we're looking into more deeply. But what we then saw was in schools that people were being punished for um, as well as not having the right uniform or whatever the equipment they needed but for behaving in ways that are you know transgressing the rules but that there's a whole backstory as as to why and that's only going to pull them further apart from their peers and I think what's really interesting about this story um is quite and actually probably all of them how much is going on and how you've got things going on at home, you've got things going on at school, you've got things going on in the neighbourhood in terms of relationships between the family and their neighbours, and how the issue of isolation is reflected in all of those. I think it's it's quite understandable and maybe expected that there'll be a level of isolation given the stigma around problem debt and poverty, that there'll be a level of isolation between the family and people outside. I think what we were slightly more surprised by was how that can just be reflected within the household. So mm. so as well as relationship breakdown happening between parents related to financial insecurity, you've got the children withdrawing or the parents just not... Be, you know, they're juggling, in some cases, five jobs, mm. part-time jobs. They're not there. They might be there in the household, but they're not there to monitor so closely what their children are doing. So they find that they are, for example, going online, playing more violent games, finding themselves down this tunnel on Tumblr, Mm -hmm. looking at things that, you know, and the parents, there, right next to them, but they're online doing their eBay shop, running their eBay shop, Mm -hmm. and they're not not there in the way that they want to be and need to be for the kids. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what we've been discussing around stigma um, and the way that school friends and the kind of wider community will see um, families or um, parents who are um, living in problem debt was really um, something that was a bit of a challenge for us when we were communicating our campaigning around debt. Um, So often I think it was difficult for our supporters or for members of the public to make that link between um, debt as something that an adult will get into, but also to see the impact that it directly has on children and young people growing up in those families. So I think for us, there were two key challenges, and one was one was to, um, to try and tackle the narrative around people falling into debt in the first place as being um, irresponsible or spending their money um, unwisely or on, on the wrong things. And I think that the, the discussion we have around you know, the relationship breakdown or unemployment or other kind of various factors and being the reasons people falling into debt in the first place is really key to that. And we actually teamed up with other organisations 
um, to produce a report called Life Events uh, that looks at some of these reasons. Um, and the other one for us is to make sure that part of the focus does remain on children and young people to show that there are very real consequences for the experiences they have, um, like being uh, isolated or stigmatised. Um, so, yeah, that was important. There was just, there was just one other thing that I, I wanted to kind of mention, which was uh, unusual in this, in this case compared with some of the other stories in that uh, the, the family were, were, were homeowners. Mm-hmm. Actually, there is something really important about debt in homeowning families. Um, the, firstly, the support that can be provided for people uh, on low levels of income who have um, who are who are homeowners and have to pay a mortgage tends to be much more restrictive and much less than that that's available for people who are renting because the assumption is well if you're owning your home then you know you can afford to pay for it uh, it's not the kind of role of the state to pay for it but the challenge with that is that people who own their own home will do anything to make sure that they keep up with their mortgage payments right. you know it can be you know you'll cut back on food cut back on heating the home you know anything just making sure that the mortgage payments get are kept on top of because the idea of losing your home can just be so so critical i think for families in william and stella's position you know where they are where they do own their home but they've had a change in circumstances which means they're struggling to keep up with repayments on their mortgage there is something that really really needs to be done to make sure that they're able to um to to stay on top of that and that it's not that it's not meaning that they're they're not keeping up with some of the kind of basic other essentials like uh feeding their family keeping their home warm things like that as well um, that's brilliant. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for your input into that. I think it's kind of clear to see that from just one family story, there's so many things we can pull out that apply um, really broadly. So thank you. Thank you very much. I should say that both Life in the Debt Trap and Broken Benefits, uh, well, more information about both books is available on our website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.